When God restored the Earth's surface after a massive catastrophe that destroyed nearly all life, perhaps all life, if, if not all life from the Earth's surface, or excuse me, perhaps uh, all life was destroyed from the Earth's surface, but if not, then virtually all life was had been uh, exterminated at that time. But God brought light to the earth again. He brought life to the earth again. And he created various living creatures, most of which are still with us today. Now, these creatures, in many cases, are quite different from creatures that have been on the earth previously, at least according to what have been discovered in fossil remains and so forth. Many of the creatures that existed in times past were quite different from what we see today. Among the creatures made at the time that God restored the earth's surface, as recorded in Genesis 1, were human beings. And so we read in Genesis 1, beginning with verse 27, Genesis 1 and verse 27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So notice in what it said here, it said that God created human beings, male and female. In Genesis chapter 2, we have more detailed information about the creation of human beings as male and female. In Genesis 2, beginning with verse 18, Genesis 2 and verse 18, it says, The Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God called, caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. And he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib, which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So Adam, the man, was created first. Then the woman, Eve, was created as a companion for Adam, a soulmate, so to speak, who was like Adam, who was comparable to Adam, 
Indeed, she was a creature taken from his own flesh. But although she was comparable to Adam and like Adam in many ways, in certain respects, she was different as well. The woman alone among all the creatures of the earth was a fully satisfactory companion for the man because she was of the same nature, sharing the same capacity in many ways, and yet different in some very important respects, different in vital respects, absolutely crucial respects, as well as the same in other equally crucial respects. One of the main differences between the man and the woman is without the woman, Adam could never have conceived children. Had there been no Eve, when Adam died, and he was made mortal, and it wasn't necessarily... Um, foreordained that Adam would die because he could have he was offered eternal life he turned he rejected it but assuming he was going to die had he died without Eve having been created humankind would have died with him we might ask where would we be without wives without women without mothers well the simple answer is we would be nowhere because we would not exist. Men, even men who want to pretend that they are women, cannot substitute for the real thing. The first marriage was a man and a woman. For humanity to exist required a man and a woman and then as things developed, men and women together as companions, as partners in regenerating humanity from one generation to another. And that's how God the Creator ordained it. Jesus confirmed this when he said in Matthew 19, Matthew 19 and verse 4, And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, it's no secret to anyone, or ought not to be any secret to anyone, that today we live in a sick and decadent world. And nowhere is the decay of our society more evident than in what is happening in the family and in the institution of marriage. Probably you've heard the dreary statistics of more than 60 million abortions in the United States since 1973. And out of wedlock births, approximately 40% of the total births occurring each year Surveys have indicated that about 80% of married men and over 50% of married women 
admit to having had extramarital affairs. Venereal diseases are spreading in epidemic proportions. Concerning the divorce rate in the United States, here's a statement from the American Psychological Association. Quote, marriage and divorce are both common experiences. In Western cultures, more than 90% of people marry by age 50. Healthy marriages are good for couples, mental and physical health. They are also good, good for children. Growing up in a happy home protects children from mental, physical, educational, and social problems. However, about 40 to 50% of married couples in the United States divorce. The divorce rate for subsequent marriages is even higher, end quote. The abortions, the out-of-wedlock births, the spread of venereal diseases, the divorces, not to mention the widespread acceptance of the militant homosexual agenda, these are symptoms of spiritual and moral rot that is destroying the potential for peace and happiness in the lives of hundreds of millions of people in the United States and billions of people worldwide. Even within the church itself, mar marital problems are among the most common of all problems. Now, human beings can see the problems, at least to some extent, but finding the solutions to these problems is where human beings, relying on their own wisdom, stumble and miserably fail. Yet it is essential to our very survival that we find the proper solutions to these problems that strike at the very root of society. This world is perishing. It is perishing, but under the leadership of Jesus Christ, we, the people of God, are going to have to build a new world upon the ashes left when this world finishes destroying itself. If we are to have a part in building a better world tomorrow, we must today begin finding and putting into practice in our own lives the principles that build solid, lasting, happy marriages and that produce stable and secure families. We must solve our own marital problems if we're going to teach others later on how to have happy marriages. So, where do we begin? One place we could begin, perhaps the most logical place, is we begin with the head of the family. If we can get the heads of the family straightened out and headed in the right direction, the rest is likely to follow in due course. God says the head of the wife is the husband in Ephesians 5, verse 23. Ephesians 5, verse 23, it says, The husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. And husbands are told that their duty, their obligation, is to love their wives. In Ephesians 5, verse 25, Ephesians 5, verse 25, it says, Husbands, love your wives, 
just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. So we're commanded as husbands to love our wives, but exactly what does that mean? What is, what, what is the meaning of the command to love your wife? Is it just a sentimental feeling? Is that what loving your wife is? Is it just infatuation? Many marriages are based on, or at least start out with, a shallow emotional attachment between two relatively immature people. As the two live together on a day-to-day -day basis, a shallow and selfishly oriented emotional attachment will begin to wear thin. The two begin to see flaws in one another's personalities, character, and maybe physical appearance that they didn't see before. In many marriages, even though the two may continue living together, the partners begin to harbor disrespect for one another. One or the other, both partners may begin to harbor resentment and bitterness toward the other. The marriage, instead of being an, an increasingly delightful and joyous experience, becomes an ordeal of survival of one tolerating the other, but living in a more or less perpetual state of misery. The first key to avoiding this kind of situation the first key to building a truly happy marriage is for husbands to obey the command to love their wives. Now, I'm not saying that's all there is to it. There's, there's uh, much more to it. But today I want to focus on how husbands can build their marriages by following this command to love their wives. Love is not a shallow emotional attachment. It's not a possessive and domineering attitude. Love embodies both attitudes and actions or deeds that reflect unselfish, outgoing concern. Remember, uh, we were instructed here to, in Ephesians 5, verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Notice the kind of love that we're to have. It's a sacrificial love. It's a giving love. It's an unselfish love. And the kind of love that husbands are to have for their husbands, or excuse me, that husbands are to have for their wives is unselfish, outgoing concern. That kind of love, which is what love actually is, produces a particular result. We're told in 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 1, 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 1, that love, that is the godly kind of love, edifies The word edify means to build up, and that's also what the Greek word that's translated edifies here means. It means to build up. Love edifies. It builds. It does not destroy, but it builds. 
When God said, when God says, love your wife, he's saying, build up your wife. Build your marriage. Build your relationship with your wife. Building a building takes more than emotion, sentiment, or wishful thinking. It takes planning, it takes effort, and concrete action. Building up your wife and your marriage is the same. It doesn't just happen, it takes concentration and effort, work, concrete action, it takes deeds. God gave the man authority in marriage to enable him to build up to edify his wife and family. And if you're a husband and you don't exercise your God-given authority to edify your wife, you are neglecting your God-given responsibility. Also, if you use that authority for anything other than to edify your wife and family, you are abusing and misusing it. A Hebrew word for evil is ra'ah, which, is based, which uh, based on its root implies to break into pieces. Ra'ah, or evil, is the opposite of edifying or building up. It is evil, it is sinful not to build up your wife. If you're a husband, it's sinful to use the husband's authority as head of the wife in any way that oppresses or discourages her. How then are you, uh, how then I might ask, do you love your wife? Most wives want to be regarded as special in her husband's eyes. Love consists largely of exhibiting in all your thoughts, words, and deeds a special esteem and appreciation for your wife. Several places in Scripture, we see that the relationship of the nation of Israel to God is that of a wife to a husband. For example, in Jeremiah 3 and verse 14, Jeremiah 3 and verse 14, God says to the people of Israel, Return, O backsliding children, says the Lord, for I am married to you. I will take you one from a city and two from a family and will bring you to Zion. So God says, speaking of the nation of Israel, he said, I am married to you. Now, of course, that is figurative. But there are lessons in the fact that God regarded the nation collectively as his wife. God refers to the nation of Israel in a figurative sense, his wife, so to speak, as the apple of his eye. In Deuteronomy 32 and verse 10, Deuteronomy 32 and verse 10, it is speaking of God and Israel, and it says, He that is God found him, Israel, in a desert land and in the wasteland, a howling wilderness. He encircled him, he instructed him, he kept him as the apple of his eye. So Israel is, in a figurative sense, the wife of God and the apple of his eye. Now what does that mean, the apple of his eye? 
This is what Gill's commentary says of this analogy. It says, quote, in the most careful and tender manner, the apple of the eye is an aperture in it, which lets in rays of light into the retina or chamber where the images of things are formed. This is wonderfully guarded in nature for besides the orbit of the eye, which is strong and bony, and the eyelids, which in sleep are clo closed to prevent anything falling into the eye to disturb it, and the eyebrows, which are fringed with hair to break off the rays of light, which sometimes would be st too strong for it. Besides all of these, there are no less than six tunics or coats to keep and preserve it. And in like manner did the Lord keep and guard Israel while passing through the wilderness from fiery serpents, scorpions, and the nations that none might hurt. And especially thus he keeps spiritual Israel, who are parts of himself, one with him, near and dear to him, and about whom he sets guard upon guard, employs all his perfections to secure them, and constantly watches over them night and day. Adam Clark's commentary says this of this expression, the apple of the eye. Nothing can exceed the force and delicacy of this expression. As deeply concerned and as carefully attentive as man can be for the safety of his eyesight, so is God for the protection and welfare of this people, end quote. Speaking of Jerusalem as symbolic of Israel, we read in Zechariah 2 and verse 8, Zechariah 2 and verse 8, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye, end quote. This marriage analogy, as was mentioned, also applies to the church of the new covenant, not only ancient Israel, the physical Israel, but spiritual Israel. In Romans 7 and verse 4, Romans 7 and verse 4, it says, Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead that we should bear fruit to God, end quote. Now notice that just as physical Israel was portrayed as being married, so to speak, to God, so is the church of the new covenant, uh, which is uh, spiritual Israel and comparable in many ways to physical Israel. In Ephesians 5, verse 29, Ephesians 5, verse 29, it says, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. So in this analogy, Jesus Christ is the husband, and the church is collectively his wife. Now, again, this is an analogy. It's, it is uh, intended to teach certain lessons, but uh, there are, of course, uh, clear differences between a literal marriage between a, a man and a woman and Christ and the church. But nevertheless, this analogy teaches us certain lessons. 
and can teach us lessons and should about our own marriages. Now, God said Israel is the apple, was the apple of his eye, is the apple of his eye. And he thus nourished, nurtured it and protected it. So the question we who are husbands can ask is, uh, ask ourselves is, do you seek to nurture and protect, cherish and edify your wife as the apple of your eye? Do you have as much concern for your wife's welfare and well-being as you do for your own flesh? A husband ought to direct his thinking and conduct in such a way that his wife becomes and remains the apple of his eye. We're told that husbands must honor their wives, that they must honor their wives. In 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning with verse 4, 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 4, well, let's go to verse 3, says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. And that would, of course, include adultery or any adulterous liaisons or relationships. And it goes on to say in verse 4 that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. And this would apply to a husband's uh, relationship with his wife. One of sanctification and honor. In 1 Peter 3 and verse 7, 1 Peter 3 and verse 7, it says, Husbands likewise dwell with them, that is, with, with their wives, with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel. In other words, speaking of the general principle that women are physically weaker than men, not necessarily weaker in other ways, but giving honor to the wife as the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. So we are commanded to give honor to our wives. The word translated honor in 1 Peter 3 and verse 7 is the Greek word teme, which implies to esteem as a special treasure. To esteem as a special treasure. Love in action is honoring your wife, showing esteem for her as a special treasure. Someone who is special and unique in, in your life. Someone you treasure, a, a relationship that you treasure. Now, doing this, actually following through and accomplishing what this tells us to do, takes prayer, it takes work and practice. And it has nothing to do with whether your wife looks like Miss America or whether she has personality flaws. I suppose there's not a woman on earth or a man for that matter who uh, 
does not have some flaws from a physical standpoint as well as personality flaws or whatever. None of us is perfect in those respects. But <clears throat> nevertheless, we have the command of God to honor our wives, to treasure our wives, and it is our God-given duty to do so. Husbands, when they think of their wives, should be thinking not how can I dominate her, not how can I force her to do my bidding, but what are her needs? How can I show honor to her, to my wife? How can I express to her that she is in my eyes a special treasure? Well, there are probably a lot of things you could do, but I want to, in the rest of this sermon, give you three specific things that you can do to honor your wife. Now, as I said, this is just a suggestion, a place to start, perhaps. But uh, first of all, one of the most important things that you can do to treat your wife special, to honor her, is to make it a point to sit down and talk to your wife frequently. And in most cases, you should do this every day. And if you don't do this, you probably will have problems in your marriage. You will almost certainly have problems in your marriage, even if you don't realize it. Make it a point to sit down and talk to your wife every day. Give her your ear. Listen to your wife. Speak to your wife with respect and with your undivided attention. Now, we might learn about what this means from our relationship with God. Remember, God views his people collectively as his wife, so to speak, in a figurative sense. And God wants to hear what we have to say to him. We, in fact, we are instructed to pray to God every day. God wants to hear our prayers, which in a, in a way is conversation with God. In Proverbs 15, verse 8, Proverbs 15, verse 8, it says, The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. God delights in our prayers. Did you ever think of it that way? That's what the Bible says, that God delights in our prayers. And in Proverbs 15, verse 29, it says, The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayers, the prayer of the righteous. God listens. He hears our prayers, especially if we're striving to do those things that are pleasing in his sight. In Psalm 34 and verse 15, Psalm 34 and verse 15, it says, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. God hears our prayers. His ears are open to 
the cry of the righteous. Those who, now we might not necessarily think of ourselves as righteous. None of us is really righteous in the, to the extent we ought to be, but God views us as righteous if we are repentant and striving to please him. And if we have made a commitment to him and, and, uh, entered into the right kind of relationship with him. And his ears are open to what we have to say. In Psalm 145, verse 17, Psalm 145, verse 17, it says, The Lord is righteous in all his ways, gracious in all his works, the Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will hear their cry and save them. The Lord preserves all who love him. We, we read a scripture in Deuteronomy concerning how God viewed Israel, and it says in, in Deuteronomy 32, verse 10, he, that is God, instructed him, that is, instructed Israel, he kept him as the apple of his eye. Now, we've seen that God hears us, and God also speaks to us. He instructs us, he teaches us. He, he uh, communicates with us. Nehemiah wrote, Nehemiah 9 and verse 19, Nehemiah 9 and verse 19, Yet in your manifold mercies you did not forsake them in the wilderness that is Israel. The pillar of the cloud did not depart from them by day to lead them on the road, nor the pillar of fire by night to show them the light and the way sh they should go. You also gave your good spirit to instruct them. Now, we don't hear God speaking to us in exactly the same way that we might hear other people speaking to us, but nevertheless, God has gone to great lengths to communicate with us and does so through his word and his spirit. In Psalm 24 and verse 12, Psalm, Psalm 94 and verse 12, it says, Blessed is the man whom you instruct, O Lord, and teach out of your law, that you may give him rest from the days of adversity until the pit is dug for the wicked, for the Lord will not cast off his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance, but judgment will return to righteousness, and the upright in heart will follow it. God teaches us, he instructs us, he communicates us with us through his word. The Bible is full of instruction on all kinds of things that help us to have understanding, wisdom, and knowledge of how to live our lives, how to be fruitful, and how to inherit eternal life. And it's full of words of encouragement. In Proverbs 4 and verse 10, Proverbs 4 and verse 10, it says, Hear my son and receive my sayings, and the years of your life will be many. 
I have taught you in the way of wisdom. I have led you in right paths. When you walk, your steps will not be hindered. When you run, you will not stumble. Take firm hold of instruction. Do not let go. Keep her, for she is your life. God has given us his words to instruct, to guide us, and to teach us, to encourage us, and to uplift us. Living by God's word preserves us, we're told in Proverbs 6 and verse 20. Proverbs 6 and verse 20. My son, keep your father's command and do not forsake the law of your mother. Bind them continually upon your heart. Tie them around your neck. When you roam, they will lead you. When you sleep, they will keep you. When you awake, they will speak with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the law is a light. Reproofs of instruction are the way of life. God has gone to great lengths to communicate with us and to preserve for us his word. That the Bible even exists is a profound miracle or even a series of miracles. And we can commune with God at any time through picking up a Bible and reading it or by going to him in prayer. And through the spirit of God, God communes with us through his word and through prayer and the inspiration and guidance of his spirit. Through his spirit, we can have the very mind of God. As we read in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 16, 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 16, who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. The point of this is that God communicates with us. And if we are doing our part in this process of communication, it will be a daily Affair. It will be daily communication as we pray daily, as we study God's word and drink in of God's word daily. A sound relationship, a fruitful relationship is built on communication. And husbands should not forget that to build their wives, to build the marriage relationship requires communication. It requires communicating with your wife, talking to your wife, listening to her, talking things over, problems in the household, issues that come up, finances, family finances, and all kinds of other things need to be discussed with your wife and between the two of you, as well as just uh, things that might be on your mind. So take the time to build a close and loving, loving relationship with your wife by talking to her and listening to her. Now this, again, this takes time. This takes a deliberate effort to put in the time necessary to communicate with your wife. And also as you're communicating, don't forget to compliment your wife on things that she does well. Don't forget to express appreciation for all the things that she does to please you. 
That will help build your relationship. It's one of the most important keys to loving your wife. Another step you can take to love your wife and show her that you love her is to buy gifts for her on occasion within the range that you can afford. Not, I'm not talking about buying extravagant gifts that break your budget or that are unwise given your resources. Let's look at what God did for Israel. In Ezekiel 16, Ezekiel 16, it says in verse 10, and this is a, a, a metaphor of God's relationship with Israel, again, as a husband to a wife. And it says in verse 10, I clothed you in embroidered cloth and gave you sandals of badger skin. I clothed you with fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. I put a jewel in your nose, earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen, silk and embroidered cloth. You ate pastry of fine flour, honey and oil. You were exceedingly beautiful and succeeded to royalty. So this is an example of how God gave these gifts to his wife, metaphorically speaking. And this is just a few of many things that could be mentioned that God has given to his people over the generations. God gives to us constantly in ways that we often are not even aware of. One of the most important ways husbands can give to their wives is, of course, by working to support their family. And certainly that's uh, very important. But it should not necessarily just end with that. On occasion, you ought to do something extra special to show your appreciation for your wife. And it doesn't necessarily have to be something costly. It might be something very simple, like giving her some flowers, even ones you went out and picked yourself. Other things you might do is try to make your wife's life easier by picking up after yourself. Maybe once in a while you could cook a meal or do the dishes to give her a break. Simple things like that can communicate to your wife that you really care for her and want to make her life easier, more satisfying, and happier. And this, uh, of course, there are many other ideas along these lines that could be mentioned. Finally, another suggestion that you might consider is to take your wife out to dinner or to some special activity regularly, again, within the limits of what you can afford. 
And if you can't afford a restaurant, consider perhaps going on a picnic or to a movie or a concert or perhaps a play or just take your wife for a walk in a park or even just in the neighborhood. The idea is that you can give her some time to spend with you outside the usual routine. It not only gets you out of your rut, it can help her get out of a rut as well. And this is another way you can show honor and respect and appreciation to your wife. The main thing is husbands ought to be faithful to their wives in all that they do. We ought to be faithful in all the thoughts of our hearts to our wives. You should build up your relationship so that the two of you are truly one in the bond that you have built with one another. So if you do these things, follow these principles and perhaps expand on them, you will edify your wife and your marriage. And if you do these things, your marriage at least can be a happy one.